Okay, uh, since we only have to be here an hour, let's quickly delve into the sermon. We are looking at uh, the book of Ephesians under the theme, Celebrating the Unsearchable Riches of Christ. And even in a context such as one we are in with COVID wreaking havoc, we can still say there is much to celebrate. That which in fact drowns completely the uh, kind of situation that we are in and how we would be feeling because of those kinds of uh, situations. Well, last time, we were looking at verse 4, and I'll read it in a moment, but today we are moving on to verse 5. Let me begin with the first verse. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So as I've already hinted, this is what we are looking at. Last time we're looking at the fact that we are individuals who are chosen from before the beginning of the world. That's how we come into our salvation. And I was emphasizing the need for us to view our salvation from eternity, instead of always wanting to begin with our immediate experience, the day that Jesus, in an experiential way, brought us to himself, instead, we should say, okay, when did this enter the mind of God? When did he commit himself to the grand purpose of snatching me from the flames of hell and indeed from my own sinful tendency? And if we can learn to go back to eternity, we will appreciate this salvation very, very much. And that's why the election aspect was so important for us. Uh, for today, we are looking at the subject predestined for adoption. Predestined for adoption. And you'll notice that that's what verse 5 tells us there. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, all that that is saying, so I'll let the cut out of the bag, is that God predetermined that in the end we will be sons in his family and sons 
forever. Let me say it again. It is telling us that God predetermined, in other words, before time began, when he chose us, he predetermined the end to which we will finally land. And that end is that we will be sons in his family forever. Let's quickly think about this together. First of all, we must celebrate the fact that our election is out of love and towards a predetermined end. It is out of love and towards a predetermined end. Our verse begins with the statement, rather, the sentence in our text begins with the statement, in love he predestined us. The reason why, as I said, I think it was last week or the week before, rather the last time I was here, the reason why uh, in love seems to be in the previous verse is because verse 3 down to verse 14 is an actual one long sentence. And so in any sentence, you're not too sure where particular phrases immediately relate. Are they relating to the previous phrase or are they relating to the next phrase? And in this particular case, the translators of our Bible opted to take in love and add it to the predestination. Why? Well, in one sense, it makes sense because God is bringing us into his family and is doing it because he loves us. Because he loves us. And therefore he's saying, come in. I want you to be part of the family. I'm a little biased and I tend to think that it was the election that was being done out of love. In other words, he chose us and he chose us by putting his love upon us. And having loved us, he then predetermined the end to which we will find ourselves. However, I won't make it an issue because at the end of the day, it's still love, isn't it? Whether he loves us when he's choosing us or loves us by determining where we're going to go. What is amazing is that despite knowing that we will be sinners, stubborn sinners, fighting against his will after we are born and live so many years, God still predetermined, knowing all that he knows about us, that we would not only be his in terms of choosing us, but we would be his children, his sons in eternity. So that's basically where he is um, starting from. He predestined us for adoption. He predestined us for adoption. And the point there is that it was a completely sovereign act. It was something that God did at the beginning saying that this is the way in which the story will end. Um, 
the best way I can sort of try and picture it, and it's a very um, inadequate way of capturing it, is the way in which uh, when you go for elections and you choose a president, uh, especially when he is a new president, there is a period between the point at which he is announced and the point at which he begins to function as a president. And the phrase that is normally used is that he is a president-elect. He's a president-elect. And the point is, he has been chosen. And because he has been chosen, it is a matter of time. He will begin to, to function. The entire state machinery is working together with him in preparation for him to enter into office. And even in between the election and the swearing in, he's already busy working towards the presidency. He's choosing his cabinet. He's choosing the different individuals that be working with him in the context of either State House or White House or whatever place that he might be functioning from. He's already, in a sense, engulfed in that reality because it is a matter of time. It is predetermined already, and he can work towards that. Well, friends, that's the truth that is being brought out to us in this text. That that's what really changes the way in which we live as believers. We believe that God has predetermined our end, the end being adoption. And therefore, as we are living today, we are already living in that light. That's what I will be. And therefore, it determines all my priorities. It determines my agenda. It determines the way I live, even though I am not yet there. In a way, the whole of history is like that. First of all, with respect to our own salvation, in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 8, this is the way the Apostle Paul puts it after that glorious promise in Romans 8.28, which we often thrill in. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And then it says, for those who are called according to his purpose. We'll come to purpose in a moment. But listen to this. For those whom he foreknew, and that's referring to choosing beforehand, he also predestined, that's what we are dealing with now, to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the adoption. We'll look at it in a little more detail at the very end. And it says, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So Jesus will not be alone. He will be with his brothers in sharing in this life in the family. And then as a result of this in-between, 
the election and that final state, we are told in verse 13, and those whom he predestined, he also called. It's a matter of time. Those whom he called, he also justified. It's a matter of time. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It is a matter of time. That's the end to which this is taking us. However, this predestination is, is not just in terms of you, but it is even the environment, the, the activities that are happening in between to bring you to that salvation. We see this with respect to Jesus Christ in um, Acts chapter 4 when uh, the disciples were praying and they are recollecting the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4 and uh, verse 28. Acts 4, verse 28. Let's begin from verse 27. For truly in this city, that is Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Listen to this to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So they were acting as free agents. It was their own enmity and malice that drove them to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. But what they did not realize is that they were working according to plan what God had predetermined in eternity, slain from the foundation of the world, they now carried out as free agents. And it turned out that the price for our sin was fully paid for in Christ. Okay, so he predestines the means, but in this particular case, he is, predest he is predetermining the end. What is that end? Let's quickly move on to it. The end is that of our adoption as sons of God through Jesus Christ. Let's go back to our text. Verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, let me quickly deal with a small matter here. Adoption doesn't change you. It changes your status. You remain just the way in which you are. Adoption is a legal activity. Someone goes, at least in the modern sense and also in the Roman sense, someone goes to court before a judge fills in forms and signs that from this day onwards, this person will be entitled to these rights in my family. That's what adoption is. So if you were sick in the morning, you probably will still be sick in the evening, but in between, your status has changed, 
you have now become a child in this family. The reason why I'm emphasizing that is because the, our adoption here is not simply as children of God, it is as sons of God. Whether you are male or female is beside the point. You are adopted as sons. Now, the point that we need to appreciate here is that in the, the times in which the Bible was being written, only sons were heirs. Only sons inherited the possessions of their uh, parents. And so by emphasizing here that it is adoption as sons, the emphasis is not simply someone who will become my child, but someone who will inherit that which belongs to me. This is captured in the book just before, in the book of Galatians, and chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4, and uh, verse 7. Galatians 4 and verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And then listen to this. And if a son, then an heir through God. An heir through God. And you find, therefore, that often when the Bible is speaking about us being adopted, yes, it sometimes uses the generic term, children, but when it then comes to specify the, whether it's male or female, it inevitably puts in son rather than just sons and daughters. It's deliberate because it wants to emphasize that which becomes ours by right and it is that which is bestowed on a son. So, in this legal form, in the courtroom, is the statement adopted as dash, dash, dash. And God puts the word son there. And what it means, assuming he was a human being and dies, then when those documents are brought out, you receive your portion because you were adopted as a son. If the word that had been put there was daughter, then you would not inherit. Yes, you would enjoy the status of belonging to him, belonging to his family, but you would not be among those who celebrate this opportunity. We read in the book of Romans something that could have skipped your eyes if this reality was not there. Romans and chapter 8, verse 29. I know we read it, but I want to repeat. If you did not know what I've just talked about, your eyes glazed over these words purely as a child of God. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Notice in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Not among many brothers and sisters, but among many brothers. 
And also, he's the firstborn. Now again, the world in which the Bible is coming from, if you had four sons, what you did is you divided your property into five parts. Even if you had four sons and four daughters, you still divided your property into five parts only. Your four daughters will be on this side. Your four sons will get one portion each except the firstborn. The firstborn gets double. And that's the reason why you divided your property into five. Your firstborn son got double because it would be his responsibility to look after your widow, which is your wife, and it would also be his responsibility to look after his sisters until they get married. And if any never gets married, they still remain his responsibility. And that's what that phrase, firstborn, is all about there. It is not simply that he was born first, but it's a status that is given to our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the primary heir of all things, and then the rest of us are heirs as well because we are brought in not simply as children, not simply as sons or daughters, but all of us are sons, all of us. Are brothers in that sense. Now that's important for us because this aspect of inheritance, inheritance, inheritance is huge as part of the hope of believers. We are not just individuals who survive hell and they have a sort of land into heaven going, mopskin. It's much more than that. We are arriving and saying, wow, all this is mine? We are blown over by that which God has prepared for us. We are predestined to become sons. So, whereas our adoption as sons is something we begin to experience on earth. The main experience awaits us in glory. Let me say it again. Whereas, let's use the right phrase here. Whereas we have a test of that adoption, the main experience of it awaits us when we get to glory. And that's the reason why, uh, for instance, in the book of Romans, we read it in those terms that we are ad um, adopted. Um, let me just quickly read it. Um, predestined to be conformed to his image in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So it's that final state in which we'll be 
where we will know no sin whatsoever and we will be in that final experience. Earlier in chapter 8 of Romans, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. And verse uh, uh, 15. No, no. Definitely not verse 15. Um, verse 18 downwards. Verse 18 downwards. Um, yeah, it's verse 23. Verse 23. This is the way it is put. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now that phrase, first fruits of the Spirit, is referring to us beginning to experience something of the fruit of that adoption. I'll prove that to you in a moment. So that's the first fruits. But listen to this. We groan inwardly as we await, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Now, hang on. We thought we've begun to experience this. So what is this we are still waiting for, which you are calling our adoption as sons? Thankfully, he gives us the answer here. He says this, the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. That won't happen while we are in this life. It's something that's going to happen at the very end of history. It's not even what's going to happen when you die. Your body remains in the grave. It's what's going to happen when Jesus returns, when he closes down all history, when he now gives to us that which indeed is our reward, rather our inheritance forever when our own bodies as well participate in the fruit of our salvation. So when we go back to Ephesians and chapter 1, and we go right to the end of this long sentence, which is verse 14, listen to what he says. I begin with verse 13. In him, referring to Jesus Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Remember what we saw earlier as um, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. So that's what it is there. And look at what it says. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? That's the big thing. That's why we are adopted as sons. It's a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So if we are Christians, we have begun to have a taste of that which awaits us. How? By the Holy Spirit coming to live in us. He actually gives us a sense of who we belong to. The Apostle Paul says we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit of God who is in us enables us to have this real, real sense that God is my Father. He enables us to have a very, very real sense that these are my brothers and my sisters. 
I relate to Christians not the way in which I relate to my office mates and my schoolmates. No, there's a very real special bond created by the Spirit of God who is resident within my soul. It's the first fruits of the Spirit. But let me hurry on to what to me blows my mind. And it's that little phrase at the end of our text, back to Ephesians 1, where he says, according to the purpose of his will. Sometimes you've heard the phrase lost in translation. This is one of them. When you go from one language to the other, we tend to lose sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, the full import of the words that are there. And this is one of them. The phrase that has been translated um, the purpose of his will is actually a compound phrase. It's, it's two phrases in one. It's, it's like when I said president-elect. Uh, we understand it as one word, but it's really two words that are uh, combined. Or uh, we speak in terms of grandfather. I think you can understand why I'm using that illustration. Grandfather. Again, it's actually two words which you have combined into one. Um, shikulu is a typical one. She is really just father. Kulu is big. So it's big father. But of course, big is grand. So it's grandfather. So it's really two phrases that have been locked into one. And that's what you have here when he's speaking about the purpose of his will. That phrase purpose and that phrase will are actually combined. The problem is to try and understand the relationship between the first part and the second. Now, the first part which is translated purpose is true there is some purpose about it. But there's something more than purpose. And it is the aspect of desire and delight. Desire and delight. Let me just show you two quick verses where this phrase is used. And uh, let's quickly look at Romans 10 and verse 1. Romans 10 verse 1. The, the phrase that is translated purpose in our text. Uh, Romans 10 verse 1. Brothers, the Apostle Paul says, my heart's desire, that word there, desire, is actually the word that the Apostle Paul uses in Ephesians 1 verse 5. My heart's desire. This is my longing. I will rejoice if this is fulfilled. And what is it? And prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, my fellow Israelites. That's what I long for. I, I will rejoice if this happens. Another place where it is used is Philippians 1 and verse 15. Philippians 1 and verse 15. The Apostle Paul says there, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. That phrase, goodwill, is the same phrase that is translated purpose. But others from goodwill. In other words, whereas others are doing it simply because they hate me, they want me to get into trouble, 
So what is motivating them is a negative motivation. He's saying others actually delight in preaching the gospel. They love preaching the gospel. They, their interest is to see the positive fruit of the gospel. That's what it is all about. So we, we need to import all that into this Greek word. And it seems to me what it captures the most is this aspect of delighting. That this is something I will delight in. That's why I said it blows my mind that at the time that God is choosing me out of love and then predetermining my end that I will not only be a child in his home, but a son inheriting all that belongs to God, it's something he's doing delightfully. This is his joy that I will have a share in that which is his. This universe that belongs to him. His own holiness, his own glory, and all the splendor that belongs to him. He's saying, I, 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 I want him to be part of this. And he, he makes it his purpose. He makes it the goal to which history will be going. And that's captured in the phrase, will. Will. And so some versions, like the New International Version, this is the way the phrase is put. It says, according to his pleasure and will. According to his pleasure and will. Because they don't want to lose that aspect of pleasure, and at the same time they want the aspect of purpose, end, his will, his, his uh, uh, determination, his, his intention. His resolve that that's where I will get. Perhaps one way to capture this, and I must hurry on to close, is um, when a man chooses a woman to marry, and he says, I want to marry you. He's not simply saying, you know, let's agree on something now. He's basically saying, if you say yes, what I want to see. And when he gets a yes, begins to work deliberately to that end. He can't wait for his wedding day. He can't wait. Today is someone's wedding anniversary, sixth wedding anniversary, by the way, but I'll keep it between myself and them. But I'm sure the person in here is saying, six years ago, yes! It happened. Can you imagine God thinking like that about you? Huh? I personally have difficulties processing that. That in eternity, God said, yes, this is where we are going. And even now, he's working in that direction. That one day, I will rejoice in that. 
Oh, brethren, we're calling this celebrating the unsearchable riches of Christ. If that doesn't make you celebrate, I don't know what will. If that doesn't make you overlook the impact even of COVID now, I don't know what will. But this is what God has for us. You can understand why Paul in a prison, a Roman prison, the first thing he says is, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The very first thing is, Praise the Lord. It makes sense. Because of these deep profundities and immensities of sovereign grace that he is meditating on. The darkness of that prison and its chains blur into insignificance in the light of these realities. They, they as it were, stand before him in, in full measure and he goes, wow, what a privileged person I am. Oh, brethren, we need to celebrate this. Amen.